0: The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing.
1: Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, your host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where we talk to investors, founders, operators about all things value creation and startups Today, I am with Ed Wilson, who is the managing partner of Impulsum Ventures, which is a $10 million seed stage fund focused on investing in health tech, fintech, and consumer tech, uh, and based out of Santa Monica. Ed, how are you doing? Dude, I'm doing fantastic. Beautiful, sunny day here. Just closed our fourth deal and uh, just putting one foot in front of the other. I remember this one time I met you in Santa Monica. And I think we're like, we're stepping over homeless people as we were walking. And, you know, I was getting, I was getting a, I was having a conversation with you about, uh, storytelling around, um, you know, a second, you know, a second fund for us. And you're like, you know, you're like, basically David, you have to sell a story that there's an opportunity, not that you just need money. Yes. (laughs) That was really good advice.
2: I mean, it's funny. I don't even remember giving this, but like at the end of the day, like we're in especially right now, we're in this space where like there's a lot of different funds out there, and it's like, what are you doing that's really unique? like what are you doing that makes it so uh you have an edge over
1: somebody else right because everyone's gonna say they have proprietary deal flow,
2: right everybody has a network like everyone's got know, a network it's 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 all it's all there, but it's like what makes it so like in a competitive situation, a founder picks you or you're able to just kind of get in there in a way that other people aren't. And you're able to kind of see something that other people just aren't able to see.
1: Right, right. And then, and then we'll get into like kind of your process. But why don't you give the audience, which includes like my mom and like some random people, like a little bit of a uh, little bit of background on yourself, you know, and uh, where Impulse kind of uh, generated from. I will, but it's also interesting you say that thing
2: about your audience because I was just sitting down with a friend of mine the other day who uh, works with influencers and he gave me some stat where it's like, if you have 300 listeners, you are in the top 10% of podcasts. Oh, really? Yeah. It's just like, it's, it's such a grind to get there and then to maintain and keep it. But like the hardest thing is people, and then the average dropout is like two episodes. Before, like, somebody says, like, I don't want to, I don't want to do a podcast anymore.
1: So, so is that like three hundred per episode? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I am so yeah, halfway there. I like am like, halfway there. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: You are like you have only need like two hundred and like ninety eight more people. Yeah, no,
1: exactly. Like the bar's not that high.
2: <laughs> um, what was the question again? Tell me, tell tell the audience know. about myself.
1: I don't know. Yeah,
2: tell the audience about yourself. Okay. Um. So I was uh, I was born in Palo Alto. Uh, dad was a, uh, entrepreneur in the tech space. Mom was an architect. I got out of high school, went to college at Occidental, decided I want to be an architect. I did that for a while, realized that it was the real estate developer that was having way more fun because they got to decide the project. So I ended up moving into that and I was doing some eco-friendly real estate development, uh, high-end residential type homes. Uh, love that. Wanted to learn more ended up going to Columbia to get my master's in real estate development, got out in 2009, and nobody needed a building built. I was like literally sitting there just being like, oh, I've had this like skyrocket of a, you know, career uh, from college. Then all of a sudden, like all my money was spent on grad school and I was back at home living in my parents' basement." (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, the epic, the epic unveiling of Ed Wilson, and then you're right back home.
2: Totally. Like all my friends are
1: talking to me, they're like, dude, I think you're going to get paid like six
2: figures when you get out of school. I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know, I don't know where gonna go. and like, literally just nothing. So ended up when I was in Seattle, um, they'd moved up to Seattle at that point, And my dad had a little, um, he had a closet that like had a light in it in his office. And I was like, can I take the closet and I'm just going to like hang out my shingle and start doing consulting and figure out what to do with my life. And I started doing that and running financial models for people and all that stuff. Did he charge you rent
1: or was that? You know,
2: he didn't charge me rent, but I was free labor labor because anytime that he needed a model built for like a company that they were looking at investing in or anything, he would have me do it. Like i create these waterfall structures, all those kind of things. And I started taking a few meetings that, you know, uh, he, he wanted me to join for. And I was like, dad, this is amazing. Like, how do you, how do you bec- I, I want to be, become a venture capitalist. Like, how do you become that? And he's like, I have no clue. He's like, I don't know how I became a venture capitalist. You know, I was a, a successful entrepreneur and uh, made some money. And I started investing my own money and then my friend's money. And we started working together and building stuff. And he was like, you know, like, there's like three ways you do it. Like one is you're an incredible operator. And then people want you to, you know, be part of their funds, because you got that value. Um, two is you have, you know, money, so you're writing your own checks. I like, know that's not you, because you're living with me and mom right now.
0: <laughs>
2: and then three, um, you know, you got hired right out of school, but you've been out of school for about a year now. So like, I don't think it's going to happen for you. And so I was like, right. okay, like, I'm going to figure out how to get in here. Started thinking about companies I could do and all that stuff. And in fact, my first step was I called the smartest person I knew who was my roommate in college. who's was literally a rocket scientist. And he were like, and I were brainstorming ideas. Um, before we could come up with something, uh, I ended up meeting one of the founding partners at Anthos Capital. And he took a real kind of liking to me. And I think there was this kind of dual reason why he did it. One was because um, of you know the fact that I went to grad school. So I had this kind of like quasi-finance background. But then also, um, I was a sponsored skateboarder when I was younger.
1: Nice.
2: Okay. You know, the world of, you know, consumer and tech and all this stuff, a lot of interesting companies come out of subcultures. And so essentially just from kind of being who I was and being around the people that I engaged with because of skateboarding, I knew a lot about, you know, up and coming bands, up and coming clothing companies, like food trends, all these kind of things. And that led its way into tech as well. And so (coughs) I ended up joining them. I think that was like around like 2011 or so. And I was with them for close to 10 years. And it was this amazing run where I saw them go from a, you know, $30 million fund to a $760 million fund and, you know, just learning a tremendous amount from everybody there. And in the back of my head, I always knew at some point I wanted to start my own thing. You know, it's just like kind of the world that I was right. up in. And it wasn't until I met my now partner, uh, Adam Neff, that I like, you know, we had the thesis on like, hey, if we were to start our own fund, how would we make this thing different? And how would we make it our own? And so when Adam and I got together, and actually, let me give you like a quick background on Adam, because I think it's kind of important to the story. So I have this whole VC background at this point. And Adam has been a operator and an entrepreneur his entire career. So his kind of claim to fame is our uh, first, uh, first app on the Facebook uh, platform called Causes, uh, oh, cool. for um uh for nonprofits. Then he became the head of growth and monetization for a company called 20, which was the Facebook of Spain. And I think like, it's funny for us to think back, but like, remember like all this like, you know, social media stuff was really kind of like regional in many ways.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And in Spain, at one point, they had 30% of the country's internet traffic going through them. He, you know, grew their revenue 10X, and then they sold it to Telefonica for $100 million, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. Stayed at Telefonica, did some stuff in their voice over IP systems, came back to the States, started a fintech company, which was a peer-to-peer payments company called Ledge ended up selling that to Apto Payments where when he was there, they were like, hey, Adam, you're smart. Like, help us figure out like, how to create the uh, you know Coinbase card of uh, Europe. So he created this card that basically you could buy croissants like using Bitcoin and all that.
1: I that. like how you say croissant. Is that, is that the right way? Croissant? I think it was very, very eloquent.
2: Yeah, okay, good. Um, and uh, when, he, when he came back to the States, he thought he was going to take a break for a little bit. And he kind of just snowballed creating this development studio. And he was working on areas in healthcare and fintech and really complex stuff for, you know, companies that, you know, were mostly just run by his friends. And when he and I started getting together, we started just like, we just started surfing together, just hanging out like we did, you know, back in the day. And it was when we were like hanging on these surfboards and chatting about venture and, and tech from our two worlds, we're like, you know, what would be really helpful for a seed stage fund if they were more than just advice, if they were more than just connections, um, if they actually had operational skill sets that they could loan up to these companies that they invested. in. And Adam was like, well, like, yeah, I have my development studio. Like we can leverage the resources that we have here. So what Impulsum Ventures um, ended up morphing into is essentially like almost like a, just a pure seed stage venture fund. However, We also run a separate entity that is a development studio that since we control 100% of it, we can leverage those resources for the companies that we invest in. Um, And we focus on the areas that we've had success with. So, you know, healthcare, fintech, consumer. um, These are areas that we, you know, know really well and, um, you know, really just kind of Enjoyed seeing the changes that have had happened over the last you know ten to twenty years. There's these massive industries that just are are ripe for disruption, and you see companies coming in and out all the time. But there's just this level of uh, you know hair on all these things, which you see that these uh, these tech companies are coming in and just kind of cleaning up. So it's just
1: been fantastic and a lot of fun. That's awesome, and it's so great when you find somebody that is a great partner. I've yet to find that person. Um, my, my, my dad used to tell me the partners were for dancing, but I just think that was because he was really unlikable.
2: (laughs) I got to tell you something. Like, I feel like Adam and I have that perfect combination of, we know each other from a past. Like we lived in one of those off-campus houses that was like skate ramp in the backyard, music stage, parties every weekend. We had a lot of fun. He was the surfer. I was the skateboarder, but, uh, you know, growing up and becoming adults, like, you know, all that stuff mellows out. And what you're left with is this person that you like genuinely know and trust and like. And it just so happened that he has these, you know, exact opposite skill sets of what I have. Like He's very detail oriented, you know, he's very product focused, all those kind of things. And I'm much better at kind of like getting everybody in the room, figuring out like what the big picture is of all this, and then just like executing on all of those things. And so, 've I think honestly we've had a lot of success just because of that like dual combination that we have it's like the the snoop and dre model as I like to call it
1: mhm yeah, you have a really interesting background because you 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 didn't actually like come from finance I mean, you came from like real estate like I, real estate finance like from an educational perspective, but you didn't go the iBanker banker route, you didn't work for a REIT, you know you basically like your your professional experience went right into venture, which is you know, very, I mean, I think Anthos invested definitely later, you know, companies had metrics, but, you know, what was that like going into, you know, more of a qualitative market sizing, you know, founder picking type model?
2: I mean, I've always had a passion for it. I mean, I've always believed in people. Like, that's kind of like the thing at the end of the day. And you realize that when you invest early on, that as much as you can look at, you know, the market size and all that kind of stuff, you're like, will this person just grind through it and and get through those tough times and figure this stuff out. Um, and the stuff that we end up investing in, you know, there's always, it's never everything's fully baked, but there's something there. Like they've done something. So for a group like us, if you came to us with just a deck, you know, we're probably not the right fit at that point. But if you come to us and say, hey, we have built out this MVP, here's my background, like here's what we have in terms of an edge. There's always something that you look at and you just go like, yeah, th- this is going to happen regardless of us or not. It's a matter of us now, can we be can we be really helpful people on the on the cap table?
1: Yeah. And so, you know, as your um, you know, your partners on the operational product focus, which by the way is what every VC wants to hire. They want to hire the product guy, the the operational product guy because there's such a gap in that uh in uh in portfolio, especially in the early stage. But, you know, would you say that your value to the partnership was in pattern recognition? Pattern recognition. Yeah. So like, I always say like, you know, we're, we're blacksmiths,
2: like this is a trade. So at the end of the day, like the, the level that I was at in my first year compared to this 10th or 11th year, whatever year we're on right now, uh, I should be better at what we're doing because I've just put in those hours and I should be better 10 years from now. So you do kind of get that sense of like, you know, what really works, what really doesn't. I think an important thing too though, is to not get jaded and so stuck in a pattern that you aren't able to open up and say like, is there an opportunity here? And so like a lot of the times, like when I think about, you know, companies I look at and all that kind of stuff, I'll I'll always err on the side of that they're doing something that I don't know and I don't understand. And listening to them will educate me on, you know, an opportunity that I just might not see. Um, you know, it's funny, like we, because we have this development studio and we have like 30 amazing designers, engineers, product specialists, all these people, uh, Like everybody says like, well, why don't you just like become a a venture studio? And like, why don't you guys just like build your own stuff and like, you know, create, create your own ideas. The truth of the matter is like, when I look at what's in our portfolio right now, I would have never thought of those ideas because I'm not so immersed in an industry that you realize what those pain points are. And so I would much rather leave that up to the founders and the entrepreneurs to come to us come to us with these incredible insights that they have from working in these industries and for us to be able to support them in that process.
1: Yeah, I mean that's what I tell founders. I say if I was a great CEO, I'd be one.
2: Right. And I think that's really important and that's really cool that you recognize that I think a lot of the times investors because they see a lot can sometimes get in this level of like, well, I've seen a lot. So like let me give this you know advice that you have. But every company is a little bit different. And I think for us, at least our MO when we work with founders is like, we're there to support you and there to help you. Like, as long as you're not doing something like egregiously wrong, we're really going to just sit there and say, what do you need from us? And it's less of a, you know, I've seen these people do this and let me get in there and let me talk to this member of your team. It's like, no, let's, let's step back. Let's let you do your thing. Know that we're there to be a team member to you. And, you know, it's interesting is like, you know, out of the companies that we've done now, we're board observers, but we are not board members. And I don't know if like it necessarily makes sense at this stage to be a board member. If, you know, at the end of the day, in these early phases, like what you want is you want your companies to come to you with their problems so you can help solve them versus feeling like there's almost like a, you know, parent relationship or some kind of dynamic that doesn't put you guys on an equal playing field. That just is basically like, you know, what my, you know, the dream scenarios are when something's going wrong and our founders say, Hey, this is what's happening. Can you help? And because we have this studio, a lot of the times the answer is yes.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I think about it the same way. Like I want to be the first call when things don't go well and creating that, like that safe space, there that a founder can can come to. And, you know, candidly, like I I think that um, you know, it's there's just I think there's just a natural, and I'll admit this personally, like there's just a natural insecurity, I think, when um when you're around just such greatness, right, from a founder and you're seeing all this progress and like you just feel inadequate or I just feel inadequate. And so like I just try to push value onto them that they may not <laughs> have asked for, you know, like, you know, you should talk to this guy, you should talk to this customer. And it's like, they don't need that. You know what I mean? And it's, that's more of me than them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like, so first of all, this, it's a nice thing too, that like your inclination is like, how can I help? You know what I mean? Which I think is important, which I think, you know, a lot of the times when uh, the the big thing that I realized about myself, which I didn't appreciate until you realize how valuable this is for founders is that network that you've been building, like over the last you know ten plus years that you've been in venture? Because when you think about it, like somebody who sits and builds you know incredible product all day and focuses on sales and all that kind of stuff, there's only so many hours in the day they can focus on this. There's a point when they're going to say, "We need to raise a Series A. We need to raise a Series B." If you can help them navigate that in an efficient way, that's worth a tremendous amount. I mean, that's capital that keeps their businesses growing. So it's it's a it's interesting as you get older realizing the value of your network and it's not just something that you necessarily you know need to you know it kind of happens automatically in our world but it's something that is really important to companies
1: right like how deep are these relationships that you have right and yeah i mean the, the bottom line is is i mean I, there's no way i can make an operational like suggestion that is, you know, remotely like, I mean, I guess you could just say from previous experience, but like, you're not there. You don't talk to their customers. You don't talk to their employees. Like how can you, you know, how how can you really make a a really good like operational call unless, you know, you're an operator and you know, you're working side by side. So how does that work on the, from a finance perspective? Do you just, do do they just pay the, 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 the dev shop on like a, a, a discounted rate? Is it, how does it work?
2: Yeah, it's actually really simple. Um, Essentially, if like a company like that is in our portfolio is like, hey, I need some help on my UI UX, like, can I, you know, or like, we need these banner ads done or like, you know, this thing, we'll look at it and we'll kind of say like, okay, it's going to take like people a day or so of work. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, let's just do it. We'll just do it for free. And that's just us being that kind of great value add. Now, if somebody comes to us and says, you know, we've been looking for a head of product. We haven't found that head of product. Um, We know that you guys know this space inside and out. You guys have built in similar areas before. Would you want to take on running product for us? We'll look at that and we'll say, okay, that's like a, you know, that's a big deal. That's a heavy lift. That's going to take like, you know, three to four of our people on this. Um, We're going to charge you, I'm making this up, but like, we're going to charge you 10K a month. Mm -hmm. And that literally just covers our people. Mm -hmm. So we're not making any money off of that. And we literally just say to them, look, this is what we're offering. If we're doing a good job, take it. Let's keep doing it. If we're not, again, our most important thing is your equity piece. So you do what's right over there. And if we've made an offer like that and you said, well, I'm going to use these people over there, we'd go, "Cool. please, by all means, go ahead, do whatever you need to do. Again, we are doing this to support you. Um, you know, beyond anything else, this is not about us like making money or anything like
1: that yeah, and because the 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 dev shop they actually have their own p n l their own pipeline they 're not financially dependent upon the companies that you fund
2: exactly and exactly, and in fact, actually, Adam and I don't take salaries from the fund, we take salaries from you know the studio, and the you know theory around that was that you know this being our first fund, we want as many shots on goal as possible. And so the more capital that we can like conserve for investing, um, that is, that's better for everybody in the long run.
1: Yeah. And not to mention LPs like that too. They don't like to pay for anything. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we do, we do have a management fee, but like, you know, that management fee really just goes towards, you know, travel lunches, like all that kind of stuff, just, just functioning. Um, And at the end of the day, like we're actually probably going to be like 50% below like what we expected. Um, And we do like, I think a very good job of just being conservative about saying like, hey, management fees are for running the fund. We're taking out of this bucket. Um, And I think just people really appreciate that kind of transparency.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I think so. Um, That's definitely, um, I feel... Uh, a, uh, a very important value add. So, you know, I think you talked a lot about network and I, was, I wrote some notes down because I think that they're, you know, really defining what network means and like, you know, what are wh- how do you pull apart value? What are some of the other, like in your mind as a seasoned venture capitalist, like what are the other like two, like how would you rate that in number of like the three most important things that VC has to do? Man, I actually, it's almost like kind of that real estate thing. Where it's like, you know, location, location,
0: right.
2: location. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, at the end of the day, your network helps out with your deal flow.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: At the end of the day, your network helps out with your portfolio companies when they're trying to do sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and your network helps out with your capital raising for the fund.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, when you think back to, you know, all of the coffees that you've had over the years and all the you know dinners and that sort of thing it really adds up. But I think a big important thing in the long run is that uh, you add, you bring value to other people when you're doing it. So like, you know, I was actually just out to lunch with a, a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur. And I asked him at the end, I was like, is there anything I can do to help? And he's like, that's the, that's the VC question at the end of the day. Like you have to be a person who wants to, wants to help people regardless of whether, um, you have something, like there's something for you to gain.
1: You have to want to want to help.
2: You have to want to want to help. And it's like, you want to see your friends succeed. You want to see people who have these great ideas, you know, go there, whether there's something in it for you or not. And at the end of the day, like we are this, we are this ecosystem, like we are this network of people. And when you, you know, if you were to look at your LinkedIn, you're probably connected, you know, one to two degrees, you know, from everybody that I know. Mm -hmm. Like this is a relatively small, but global group of people. So, you know, at the, at the end, like, you know, if we're able to make this, you know, a whole asset class more successful, it should be good for everybody. Oh
1: yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So you launch your fund and you you have, you know, I mean, I would consider based on what, you know, your, your targets are. I mean, it pretty generalist. I mean, you're doing B2C, you're doing B2B, you're doing healthcare, you're doing fintech, doing consumer. So how do you how do you think about like your investing um like are investing parameters in your in your deal in your company selecting process? And you know are you doing thematic kind of themes or or what? So here's how I think about our, our vetting process and it's a
2: little bit different than I guess everybody's is different, but I'm that first layer of kind of looking At a company in that filtration process. So I look at it from kind of that traditional venture capital lens of market size and competition and what they're building and how far along that company is and the whole profile of the team that they have that's set up. Then from there, we go into kind of that analyst side of things where we have our associates kind of dig in a layer bit deeper on all this stuff and kind of like really kind of vet through to say, like, okay like, are they doing something that's really differentiated? Is there really value that they're creating here for their customers? And then we'll have those entrepreneurs then sit with my partner, Adam, and he and I will do a call and all we'll talk about is product. Mm -hmm. And that's a really fun call because that gets into the nitty gritty things. And again, stuff that like, you know, is, is way above my pay grade, Mm -hmm. but Adam lives and breathes on a daily basis. And I would say at that point, that's when we really get to know a founder. And that's when we really start to understand how deep do they understand the problem that they're solving and the complexity around it. And especially when you're dealing in a healthcare or fintech space, those problems can be very complex. And then from that standpoint, even onwards, we might have them speak to some of our advisors or some of our team members on the studio side who build in that area Um, or, you know, going to our advisors like, um, you know, Andy Kara, who was one of the like founding, you know, technical people on SoFi or, um, you know, Sasha, who's the CTO of Thrive Market, like, These are people who really, you know, can like vet through and like understand things at even like a tighter level than we do on our, our, our standpoint, you know, when Adam's going through it. And from that, we're able to kind of make decision. And then at the end of the day too, we are value sensitive. So like, you know, there's funds that just kind of sit there and they say, Hey, just being a part of the deal is, is good enough. And then, you know, we're, we're there, but I think in this world, um, you know, ownership is important you know, when you want to do something, there's a lot of stuff that you look at, we'll look at probably 500 deals this year and invest in five. And I want there to be a kind of very clear, like, you know, checks, all the boxes, like the opportunity is almost hitting you in the face. And you're so excited about this, you can't sleep. Um, And unless all those things are there, we're just gonna, you know, we're not going to do it, it just won't be a right fit for us at this stage. We're not we're not in the spray and pray phase of like a bigger fund. That's just like, Hey, let's do some bets. Let's see what happens. We'll double down on the ones that, you know, work out.
1: Yeah. And doing, I mean, I consider five deals a year, $10 million fund. I mean, that is convicted. That's conviction with seed investing. And I, I, I think that's awesome um, because you, you really have a chance to lean in and help and, and do what you need to do, which a lot of people say they do and they don't.
2: Yeah, it's fun. Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, we'll be somewhere between 12 to 15 investments or so. And we want to have bandwidth to actually be able to make good on the promises that we make up front. And, you know, there's only so much time in the day. Uh, you know, there's only so much you know mental bandwidth that you have. And so being able to be close to those people and knowing that they can call you, they can text you. We're on Slack channels with everybody that we've invested in. Uh, it's a really, I don't know, it's a really great, I don't know, it's just, it's a really, it's been a really fun, fulfilling process.
1: That's awesome. And so when you're, I mean, the big elephant in the room right now, sp- specifically, when we're talking about like the market in real time, and this is an evergreen show. So I mean, people don't know what that, you know, what that could mean. But, you know, we're in the you know, second quarter of 2022, the markets are having a bloodbath, there's a lot of uncertainty. How do you think about valuing seed? from an ownership perspective? There's almost
2: this weird thing where, look, because there's a lot of money in the market right now, there's almost this level of like, if you're raising 5 million, then your company's worth a post of 25. And if you're raising, you know, like 3 million, you have a post of 15 and like so on and so forth. Um, The way that I think about it is we really look into the models and we say like, what is going to be the capital needs of this company going forward? And when we look at our position that we have at the beginning here, if we maintain our pro rata, or even if we end up getting diluted a little bit in later rounds as things come along, do we have an exit that could be 10x or above? And so then that also looks at to what, you know, is the industry that you're investing into and what's the size and potential of that company. There's companies that we're investing in that, you know, they could have an exit of, you know, 250 or something like that which depending on the valuation uh, could be a good thing or a bad thing. But as long as you back into saying like, Hey, at the beginning, we feel comfortable with our ownership because we know that the most likely scenario of this is this threshold and we'll make the multiple that we want on it. Then we can say yes at the end of the day. And
1: if anything's above that, fantastic. You
2: know, that's just kind of icing on the cake.
1: But you're but you're working with limited data sets, right? Because you know, they they are maybe early signals of product market fit. I mean, you don't know like what they can charge. So how do you how do you go about that process? I mean, you look at their financial model and you take a best
2: guess on that market size and where they can be. I mean, there's I, I think the one thing that I've kind of learned in venture over the years is that a lot of the things that will tank a company or the issues it should be concerned about. A lot of the times they're out of your control. It's a competitor, it's market conditions, it's all of those kind of things. But if you say you're solving a real problem that people are willing to pay for, and this is a big enough market to support the growth into something that would have venture type
1: returns, uh,
2: then that's a yes for me.
1: That's mm-hmm. how we kind of look. That's what I love. I mean, it's what I love about doing podcasts because I'm selfishly just asking you questions that I want to get smarter about. And (laughs) I mean, this is this is just perfect. I'm just like this is like my questions, right? I mean, I I don't even know who's listening to this. My mom certainly doesn't care about any of the questions.
2: Hey, you know what? Hey, she she might be a stellar venture capitalist. (laughs) Exactly. Like right at the dinner table.
1: So, in an environment from a software perspective, and let's use a B2B example, right? Because I think seed is. Seed is such an, an unusual place today because there's such an abundance of capital out there that's specifically in the early stage. I mean, the amount of seed funds is it's crazy right now. There's a massive repricing in the public markets. There's, you know, anecdotally, well, actually not even anecdotally, like there's actually hard data that, you know, big rounds are kind of slowing down. Some of the crossover funds are going down into seed with Tiger, et cetera. So there's probably going to be even a more inflation on the earlier stage with not really like a place to go, right? Um, Or less of a place to go. And we live in a world where a lot of things are digital, you know, I mean, like replacing Excel spreadsheets and, you know, an email, I mean, it's getting harder and harder to do. Like there is core platforms for pretty much, you know, a lot of different verticals right out there. So, you know, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing like really deep company features, right? And that are coming out as companies. And they they could be great companies, but you know, the distribution of that market is owned by another software company. And how do you think about that in a world that is very digital today? So I asked the hard questions, Ed.
2: Yeah. I'm trying to think about like what is the the way to kind of like go about this. So uh yeah, is this is this a feature or is this something that uh can be like a real like big scalable company. And so the, the example that I like to use is actually one of our investments, uh, which is a company called Uplink, which is almost like a fire hose of data that gives a much more robust FICO score that makes, um, that gives like a score that small business lenders can use to make better lending decisions. And this is something where, you know, this company was really um, founded on the transferism IP where um, this, the other co-founder of this company had been working on this IP for over 10 years. And he'd been doing this with big banks and, you know, he's a speaker at the G20 Summit. And he built this phenomenal technology that makes it so when you run, you know, a business, uh, a person, you know, a scenario through their system, it can reduce the default rate by about 75%. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so it's an incredible. And this works in over 150 different countries. And so at the end of the day, you have a lot of people who are doing these, you know, loans of small businesses. They don't have a lot to go off. They have a FICO score. Um, they have like a P&L and balance sheet, maybe. And then they have a business plan and like this person's track record. And so what that leads to is with not a lot of data is a lot of bias, And so what you find is that, you know, less kind of minorities are actually getting these loans, which, you know, could be very much well-deserved for them. But with something like Uplink, they actually give real detailed information that then will allow more kind of data-driven decisions to happen, which should lead to a better equalization of who's actually getting loans at the end of the day. And so when you think about that, like, that's a big problem that Mm -hmm. they're solving. And it's a big market and there are these small business lenders and there's these new neobanks that all want to do lending in a better Mm -hmm. way. If you can reduce somebody's default rate and then also allow them to loan more, that means they have more capital to work with, which means that they have higher management fees and they're able to grow and scale their business. So that's a huge problem that they're solving in an area that's been pretty, like, you know, pretty archaic for a long time. So, Yeah, I think about them as I say, like, that's something really big and solid somebody is building, Um, not necessarily just kind of aggregating information to put it onto one dashboard. So it's easier to work.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's some underlying IP that, you know, gives them a a, a unique edge. So how do you how do you think about uh, product development in the early stage? And, you know, MVP, you know, I mean, everyone, again, we're living in a very digital world now. I'm not entirely sure that the old MVP, the lean startup MVP is um is as applicable anymore as, you know, like people really are used to great UI and UX. And how do you think about that? You know, I don't really have a great answer for that.
2: And that's why I like I have a business partner who lives and sleeps mm-hmm. product. Because I'm sure if Adam was on here, he would have like some incredible answer for you on how he thinks about it. But I kind of like, you know, the people that we back and you get to a standpoint where you almost just kind of decide they know what they're doing on product. Our idea is to be there to support them. We have the development studio to support them. And anytime that somebody, you know, has questions about product, my typical answer to them is like, well, give Adam a call. Like you should speak to him about this.
1: It's good to have experts. And then the, like, there's like this point, I think after you make your first investment into a company where you're like, okay, I believe pretty much anything that they tell me, you know, and I have an utmost conviction, yeah. right? Um, yeah, and that, that's, a great, that's and a great place to be. To, to be. Yeah. And I think you also have to realize that
2: like, you know, when any company, like nothing is just up and to the right. And a big part of it is just being able to support them in whatever ways is, is necessary to kind of keep them going, you know, along, along the path.
1: And again, having the studio is really helpful. So why don't we talk about your book besides Uplink? I'd love to hear about the deals that you're doing and, um, you know, what what interested you. Pump it. Pump that book. Sure.
2: Okay, sure. So I'll start start with the first. And this is actually, you know, it's pretty easy because it's a a short list. Um, But, uh, you know, Care Connection Networks was our first investment. That's in the remote patient monitoring space. It's basically the software that connects all these different OEM devices that doctors are sending people home with. So if you have a chronic condition, you might get sent home with a glucose monitor, blood pressure monitor. And doctors now can get reimbursed by Medicare um, for monitoring to you. So if you monitor somebody for, you know, 20 minutes uh, a month, you can get paid by Medicare for that. And so it's really changed our whole, you know, our whole healthcare practice where it's, you know, now it's not about how many people you see during a day, it's how many people can you really monitor. And the patients are getting better care, the doctors are getting paid more and they're able to provide better care. And insurance companies love this too. I mean, anytime you can reduce some kind of catastrophic incident, um, that's uh, that's an incredible thing for them. That's where they lose most of their money. And this company actually came to us through the founder of Giphy, um, Alex Chung. And it was kind of an amazing thing. And I think is a testament to our model here. Um, these guys weren't raising capital. Um, they actually, you know, we met them in the first time we said, hey, we'd really like to invest in you. They said no. And it wasn't until we actually showed them everything that we built on the studio side in the healthcare space. that they said, oh, like, it seems like you guys could actually help up our game a little bit. And, and that's been a really incredible relationship. And I think those guys will always hold like a really kind of deep place in my heart, just like kind of being our first investment and really kind of got us on the board. And that's actually when we did the first close on the fund was really to fund them. Um, and so they were the ones who got us going. And in fact, I don't know if you can see the skateboard behind me, but they, uh, they gave that. Can you see this on the wall? Yeah, I can see it. So that's like a 40th birthday present, that they wrote, um, they got this cool, like kind of, uh, one-off skateboard and they wrote on it, uh, couldn't be more stoked to be living the dream with Impulsum and Care Connection, Alex and Cause, which like, it's just nice, you know, it's just kind of fun that that's the relationship we have. Um, Second one was uh, Nostra. That is artificial intelligence for A-B testing websites. Quite simply, um, a lot of this stuff is done by Optimizely, um, you know, Google Optimize, a handful of other companies out there. At the end of the day, there's this manual component And they looked at this and they were like, well, this is really a problem that should be solved by artificial intelligence. So they created this brain that if you give them your copy for a website, your images, as people go to this, it optimizes it to essentially, like, give the best website that you can have for people to purchase more or to give their email address, you know, a whole number of things. Um, They actually, it's funny, they just ran a pilot the other day. Um, with an e-commerce site. And their goal was to get more email addresses, and they gave them a boost of 600. Wow. Um, Yeah, so it's this really cool thing. Um, And we've been working with them really closely, because, again, they built this great brand on the background, but, um, you know, really wanted us to help kind of productize this. So somebody without a technical background can really use it. So a CMO and that sort of thing can kind of drag and drop information. Uh, so there's that one, then uplink we talked about earlier, um, you know, the firehose of data that helps small business lenders make better lending decisions. And then the fourth company that we invested in, which is actually today we wired over the money, um, is edge markets. Um, and that is in the sports betting space. And essentially what it is, is it's a, almost like a buy now, pay later in the sports betting space. It's a really cool company. And you mean bet now, pay later. Now pay later exactly. Well, you put you put some money in, and they they match your money, and they get it to the legal uh, sports betting sites. And you know it's you know if you win or you lose, you just pay them back in four weeks, zero interest. You know all that kind of stuff. Um, if you decide you want to pay back early, there's a you know small interest charge on that, um, but it allows people to kind of leverage you know their their sports betting. And you know the kind of cool part about it is that this whole world of uh, sports betting like this is really something that happens like off book, you know, in the, the black market. And that's where you have the bookies who, you know, will let you borrow money and they'll keep letting you do it until, you know, you're in a hole and they break your legs because you you can't pay them back. And almost, I look at it like, you know, in the, the, like almost in the way like the cannabis industry is like, if you look at the size of the legal sports betting market versus the, you know, uh, illegal sports betting market, it's like the illegal is like almost like three to four times bigger. And so essentially like they looked at this and they're like, well, the same tools that, you know, is being used in this illegal space, let's move it in the legal space um, and let's create it in a safe area where there's, you know, kind of guardrails for people as they, you know, bet so they don't get in over their head. And then also like, now this is taxable. So like, you know, you think about like the, the aspects of this where it's like, again, I always like to compare it to comp- cannabis where it's like, this has been going on for a long time. Let's create a system around it so it actually works for us versus
1: against us. Yeah, it works for everybody. Yeah, from a tax perspective, from a, a health perspective. And mm-hmm. this has been great. Um, some canned questions for you at the very, very end. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever got? Um, the harder you work, the luckier you'll get. <laughs> I like that one. What's your favorite book?
2: I need to see something that's like not cheesy. Is it bad that I don't even have a favorite don't, book? This don't say zero to one. Like,
1: Just don't do it. That.
2: I'm not going to say zero to one. I'm actually trying to think, like, what's the last book that I read that I was, like, really into? Um, uh, I re- Look, I really liked. God, this is so dorky. What do I have over here in terms of books?
1: Just be honest. <laughs> so, so, much shows you how
2: much, so much time. I mean, the last book I remember really enjoying reading um, is... It was actually Tony Hawk's book, Uh, How Did I Get Here? And it's just this autobiography because I just think he's a fascinating person because he's somebody who, one, like me being an ex-skateboarder, it's just like personally interesting to him. But he's had this phenomenal career of ups and downs. And at the end of the day, like he always stuck with skateboarding and it paid off for him at the end. Mm -hmm. Like he literally, he went from being bankrupt and like going to like, county fairs and like, you know, skateboarding on a skate ramp in the parking lot for a hundred bucks a session to having one of the most successful franchise uh, video games out there on the market, Tony Hawk Pro Skateboarder. And in in the way where it's just like, I think if you have a passion for something and you stay consistent with it, regardless of what the market is doing, like eventually you will win out. And so when I think mm-hmm. about things in our world where it's like people, it's like, oh, there's too much capital in the market or like, oh, this is a bloodbath or like whatever. It's like, who cares? Like, I'm right. going to be doing find this. Find the good companies from now. Right. So
1: yeah, I find, don't necessarily find the companies, like, stop worrying. Yeah. Stop worrying about the, the macro markets and just find good companies. Totally. Wait, I do have one more question for you, Ed. If founders want to reach you or follow you, how do they do that?
2: Yeah. If if anybody wants to reach
1: me, my email address is addedimpulsive dot vc. And that wraps it up for another episode of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to entrepreneurs, investors, operators about you know how do we how do we get uh, a great idea into a great company, and you know how do we capitalize it, and how do we uh, how do we scale, and um, talk to one of the the best venture capitalists I know, Ed Wilson. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and we have an episode every week. So if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel, uh, or to, we're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple, subscribe to it and you'll get an alert every week. All right. Thanks.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing.